0: Well, I believe this is the third to last sermon in this series. And like every other chapter in the book of Revelation, it is causing our eyes to be focused on Jesus Christ, even though there are many other images and there are some very weighty images and fearful images. Um, For instance, this text has been a favorite of teen camp speakers and evangelists because of its fearful imagery And yet I want to cause our eyes to look at not a different interpretation, but sort of a different angle on this chapter. Sometimes it helps me sort of craft the big idea after reading the text and asking myself, if this were my last sermon to you, what would I want you to learn from this text? Now, I hope this is not my last sermon to you. But if it were, what do I want you to go out through those doors and go to a fellowship meal thinking and knowing from Revelation chapter 20? And here it is Satan loses, God wins. Unbelievers lose, believers win. Satan ends, God continues forever. Those who are deceived to believe that Satan offers the true pleasures in this world, the true delights, the true enduring satisfactions, they lose. But those who align with the one true God, those who believe God, who follow God, who trust God, who love God, they win. They win and delight in God eternally because of Jesus Christ. Remember, all the way back in Revelation chapter 1, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 and I hope this is our prayer this morning, even as we enter into the introduction of a sermon where we're not typically accustomed to praying at an introduction. But, but here is a, a praise. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 contains the final fearful image of the entire book of Revelation. And it is a great white throne judgment. And from this point, we launch into Revelation chapter 21, the new heavens and the new earth, and Revelation 22, where we follow Jesus into eternity for his glory forever. What is this passage teaching? This is probably one of the most well-known passages because of the repeated time frame of a thousand years. And unfortunately, rather than creating unity, this passage may actually be not only the most well-known, but the most divisive passage as people are arguing over millennial debates and killiasm debates and everything else. And what happens, and there's a place for that to sort of try to find out what this is really meaning. But in, in doing so, we actually lose our charitability of Christ And we're focused then on a timeline rather than on a person. And that's dangerous in any study of God's Word. So what is the big idea here? What does it teach about God? I don't believe Revelation 20 is a jump scare tactic. If you have young children, you probably know what a jump scare is. We had a child hide behind the door yesterday and we walked in and, and they jump scare you. When you're not expecting it. And it's great and it's fun for a great few laughs. I don't think Revelation 20 is intended to be a jump scare passage to scare people into heaven. But I do believe it is giving a picture of a final battle and a final victory and the end of all that is evil. Humanity's final and worst enemies are completely and eternally destroyed. So this section is intended to illustrate victory. Revelation 20 is about ultimate victory of God over evil. This chapter is part of a much larger section on God's final judgment, beginning in chapter 17, verse 1. For example, in chapter 17, John sees what Babylon truly is, that she's a city harlot and how she will fall. And the depiction of Babylon as a prostitute displays how sin corrupts distorts and defiles all that God has made good. Not only is the sinful world system personified as a harlot, but it's also depicted as a city. Both are symbols to describe the final unholy empire and the reign of the beast and its influences. And then in just a sad chapter, we looked at chapter 18, where sort of in a song pattern with choruses, you have all these people weeping and mourning and lamenting the fall of Babylon. Do you know why? Do you know why shipmasters and seafarers and merchants sit there, grown men and women, crying as the city collapses? Because they love the world and all that is in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the desires of life, the pride of life. And what they are seeing is their God, their idol smoldering and grown-ups are weeping. That's chapter 18. Then we are introduced to, in contrast to a city harlot, we're introduced to a bride. And there's a marriage feast. And this isn't intended, this is a deliberate contrast between this woman, Babylon, the city prostitute, and Christ's bride, his people, made pure by his work, we are called to rejoice as the bride over the destruction of Babylon. And John wrote in an earlier letter, the world is passing away along with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So in the latter part of Revelation 19, we are shown this anticipation of a marriage and a wedding feast and here's, here, here's, the, here's the contrast you're supposed to receive. Christ's pure bride, his people, contrasted with Babylon, worshippers of the beast. Impurity, or impurity on this side, contrasted with purity. All that is base and wretched and defiled, contrasted with that which is beautiful and holy because of Christ. Babylon is destroyed. Christ's bride is welcomed and loved. And that brought us to that brings us to chapter 20. So that's sort of the timeline that brings us to this chapter. What is happening in this chapter? We're going to look at it in four parts. First, Satan is bound, verses 1 through 3. Then the thousand-year reign of the saints, verses 4 through 6. Satan's final overthrow, verses 7 to 10, and the last judgment, verses 11 to 15. Look at verses 1 to 3 again. Matt read this for us. We'll not reread everything. But the first section in our text this morning is the descent of an angel from heaven who takes action. I want, you to, I want you to note that. John is sitting there from the position of the earth and he says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain or a great rope. It's interesting that from the beast in the previous chapters, John now turns to the beast's master, Satan. There is no doubt as to who the dragon is. Look at how John describes him. Look at verse two. And he, the angel, seized. And here are all these names, how Satan has been portrayed in the book of Revelation. The dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Let me ask you, who binds him? This individual who has caused so much fear, so much dread. He's even deceived the nations into thinking that somehow he is in a cosmic dualism with God as an equal. Do You know, it's not God directly who binds him. Who binds him? An unnamed angel. It really shows Satan's unimportance at this point in the Revelation, doesn't it? It shows Satan's weakness at this point in the book of Revelation. Matter of fact, that's what God wants you to see at this point. If you've been duped by sin, you've been duped by a weak deceiver. God's angel has the power to seize and bind Satan in the abyss for a thousand years. That's the cube of ten, indicating a complete number, which does not mean it's not a literal number as well. And so he seizes him, he binds him, he seals him in the abyss... Of course, both the key and the chain are symbolic, for there cannot be an actual key to a spiritual abyss, and no chain can hold a spirit. Do we understand that? So then why use the image of a key and a chain? Why do that? I mean, you can't chain up the wind. You can't tie wind to a tree with a rope. So why use these images? What does a key communicate? Access? Authority? Matt has to turn his key back.? <laughs> I mean, keys are big deal sometimes. Security. They're symbolic and show God's authority over, number one, the spiritual abyss, which later on in this text is called his prison. And secondly, it shows his authority over who? Satan. This is not an equal duel. We're not waiting until the end of history to find out who wins. God wants you to see right now that Satan is weak, can be subdued by an unnamed angel, and that he can be bound for as long as God desires in completeness. And there's a reason for this. For those who love the world, you must realize this before it's too late. Your hero is whether you put a name to it or not, or an image to it or not, but if you follow the ways of the world and love the world, your hero is a convict. The one who has deceived you is a guilty murderer and a serial predator. And it's exactly what he does. He deceives and he hides and he causes you to delight in that which God says he hates. This is an incredible text to show you this individual called Satan and that God with an unnamed angel, can subdue him. The master, trapper, and hunter will himself be bound and captured. However, what the thousand years reveals is, is quite interesting. If, if you've noticed this, we're looking at the first section, verses 1 through 3. Satan is bound. He's bound for a thousand years. Other things are going on. The dragon is sealed in the abyss. But do you know what actually comes out of this? Even with Satan bound and sealed, what happens? What happens? Towards the end of this chapter, people follow him in a millisecond and turn and rebel against God. So the whole excuse, the devil made me do it. This chapter actually debunks that, that you actually have depravity in your own heart without an external influencer and that you have rebelled against God. I have rebelled against God without any external influence. I hold my hands up to God and I say no. So it is the judicial guilty verdict against humanity and proves the need for eternal punishment. Okay, so there's place for the discussions of all the other details, but note this, Satan is bound, he is sealed, and humanity still rages against God. This could be called the divine necessity of a just God to punish sin. For the wages of sin is death. Do we believe that? Now, with Satan temporarily out of the way, John then sees thrones in a period of reign lasting for 1,000 years. Look at verses 4 through 6. Satan's bound, temporarily out of the way. We expect to read about Christ's reign and his throne. But instead, look at verse 4. John says, Then I saw thrones. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded or executed for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And then in something that reminds me of when Christ rose from the dead and people came out of the tombs, they rose and started walking throughout the city. In a similar miracle, it says this. They came to life, meaning they were dead, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, and they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is the second section. So, after the binding of Satan, he sees Thrones. There's really no location of these thrones. doesn't say whether the thrones are in heaven or on earth. Revelation 5.10 does say this. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. So it seems as though these thrones are now down um, on the earth. But that's not jo- John's focus here. John's focus is this. And we're going to go back to the big idea. Victory. Overwhelming victory. Victory, the primary function of this little interlude here in Revelation, is to reassure the church that its martyrs will be victorious. Okay, so don't don't just skip by that. I mean, there's a lot of language in there, and there's a lot of detail. But what John is saying is you have Satan, he's bound, he's sealed for a thousand years. And God's people are reigning. Martyrs are reigning. This is intended to fuel the church's witness. It proclaims that our following Christ to death, if necessary, is worth it. In verse 4, he seems to be describing a select group. All those who refused to worship the beast in chapter 13. All those who have been faithful unto death. Verse 4, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Dead people came to life, a specific group of people who refused to worship the beast. One commentator states, Quote, in effect, the scene creates or better recognizes a special class of faithful witnesses who have suffered the ultimate fate and therefore deserve and will receive special recognition by God as co-regents with Christ. Even before the new Jerusalem, those judged and oppressed by Babylon will now rule and judge. So if we broaden out that application. okay, Are you persecuted? We think about our brothers and sisters. In Christ, not only in this country, as persecution starts to starts to speed up a little bit, but also in other lands where they, they can immediately face the death penalty. What does Revelation 20 say? Are you persecuted? It's worth it. It's victory. Are you oppressed? Revelation 20 says it's worth it. Are you poor for the sake of the gospel? Revelation 20 says it's worth it. Are you imprisoned? Are you martyred? Have you been executed? This is God's declaration that it is worth it to follow Jesus even to death if necessary. Counterintuitive? Yes. Counterbiblical? No. John gives us three characteristics of those who partake of this first resurrection. It's interesting. John never makes it to a second resurrection. He never, like, calls out a second resurrection. What he's doing is he's highlighting this first resurrection and he says three things about it. Over such, and this is very important, the second death has no power, no authority. Now do you remember when Christ rose from the dead? He was on the earth for 40 days, and he's taken up in Acts chapter 1, 11. And what does he say to the disciples? All authority has been given to me. And under under that sort of power, the second death has no power over those who are safe in Christ, those who have union. With Christ. So not only does second death have no power, secondly, they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will serve with joy directly God and Jesus Christ. And third, they will reign with him for a thousand years. Royalty, reigning. Now, from deliverance from the second death to royalty and priesthood, we now transition to Satan's final overthrow. Look at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, remember, there's so much John could say about Satan's binding, about this thousand year period of reign and priesthood on the earth with Jesus. He quickly moves on after just a couple of verses. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Why? Because God's not done with him yet. He is a pawn in God's hand. God is using him. And how will God use him? Because he's released for a specific purpose. He will, be, he will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Matter of fact, he's going to take up right where he left off. He's going to continue to deceive the nations. And he mentions this. Gog and Magog. To gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There are five aspects to this scene. Satan is released. Which may make no sense to us. Unless we categorize it underneath the absolute sovereignty of God. And what is true then is true now. There is no competitor to God's glory and his throne. God is sovereign and completely in control. Secondly, he continues to deceive and gathers the nations for battle. This is interesting. For a thousand years they've been without his deception. But they are at the ready to march against God's people. The depravity of humanity. Three, they surround God's people on earth. It's a city. There's an encampment. There's really not a battle because then fire descends from heaven and devours the nations. And then finally, the casting of Satan into the lake of fire. So the nations are identified as Gog and Magog. That's a little bit of a mysterious term. Uh, Gog is mentioned in the Bible in a genealogy, in a prophecy in Ezekiel and here. Magog is found in genealogies in the Ezekiel passage and here, and it appears to be the land from which Gog. I've heard sermons where it sounds like they're saying God and it's very confusing, but it seems Magog seems to be the land from which Gog comes from. And it seems to be John's intent to be describing all the nations under the title of Gog. A leader, a ruler, or just people and the land, Magog, the hosts of the wicked. And just as the beast and the false prophet have been thrown into the lake of fire, so now the devil is. This is, this is incredible. If you, if you capture that imagery in your mind, the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire. Now the devil, who has done so much harm, is... Defeated in two stages. First, he is bound in the abyss for a thousand years. If you want to think about that, it's sort of a maximum security prison from which he cannot escape. But then he's released from his maximum security for a short time. And then he is cast into the lake of fire for eternity. And I would describe that as a mix of a life sentence and a death penalty that go on forever and ever. And God's people rejoice at that, Right. There is no real lasting power but that of God. This brings us to the final passage in Revelation 20. Look at verse 11. John then sees something else. He keeps moving quickly as he's recording what he's seeing. Then I saw a great white throne. Right? Purity, majesty, glory, And him who was seated on it. It could be the Father, it could be the Son. In John 5, all judgment has been given to the Son, and yet we see throughout the book of Revelation the Father is judging as well. God is on the throne. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in those books according to what they had done. Mark that. Remember that. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Mark that. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, without sensationalizing this text, what is it teaching? And I want our young people to listen to this as well. You can hide from others. You can hide from a pastor. You can hide from a godly influence in your life. You can avoid church altogether. You can run towards anonymity, but you can never hide from God. That's what the text is saying. You can avoid God's people. You can avoid the church as God's people in your life, but you cannot avoid God. He is everywhere, at all times, in His glory. The focal point initially is the great white throne and him who sits on it. That may not be your focus right now, but it will be. There will be a day if you try to run and try to hide, there will be a day when that will be the focal point from where you stand. It's a fearful image. There's a reason it is the final fearful image of the entire book. God may fade among a thousand different distractions right now. We go through any number of social media activity or or Fortnite or any other games. And God can just kind of fade away and evaporate into us pursuing our careers or even good things. But not on that day. He will be unmistakable in his glory, his might, his power and. His justice. Before the new age can begin, this age must cease. Listen to what Isaiah wrote hundreds of years earlier. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Nothing can hide him and nothing is hidden from him. Look at verse 11 from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Basically, the the picture you are given is absolute clarity on who he is. Heaven and sky flee. There he is. In his complete awesomeness. That's why they write, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Not only that, but no one is overlooked. Look at verse 12, the second part. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. What does that mean? All the dead are included. No one is overlooked. Kings and those who have, been, have never been noticed. Princes and simple tradespeople. Everyone will be there. None is overlooked. Look at verse uh, 12 again. And books were opened. What books? It seems to be a record of all our words and all our actions. Is that disturbing? Because honestly, that's disturbing for me. Right? Those things whispered in silence, those angry taunts, those re- all of that's recorded. Matter of fact, Jesus, while he was on the earth, he taught this. I tell you, listen to this. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So really quick, up against that, let me just press the gospel real quick. Here's the good news. I can let Jesus give an account of my sin completely. Or I can give an account of my sin I can trust in Jesus to give an account of my sin, which he did on the cross. Or I can give an account of my sin, which I will do in hell. Jesus paid for my sin and rose from the dead victorious. I will never finish paying for my sin. Is that clear? So when Jesus is saying you will be you will give an account for every careless word you speak, that is true. True. If I want to just charge ahead and give an account for myself, the gospel says Jesus Christ can give an account of all your sin for you and you are washed white as snow. And when you stand before him in union with Christ, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the choice. The wages of sin is death. That's true. The wage of my sin when Christ bore it was still death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I either give an account of my sin or I let Christ give an account of my sin. I love that simple gospel definition in 1 Corinthians 15:3. Christ died for our sins. Either Christ dies for your sins or you die for your sins. The second book, the book of life, we are more familiar with. It includes the names of everyone who has received God's gift of grace and has been saved to eternal life in Christ alone by grace alone. That book is opened and there are names. Of course, now then you, you, you shift and it says "And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one of them according. Here it is again, according to what they had done. So the dead who can't hide, even if you have been buried at the bottom of the sea or have been cremated or you are in an anonymous grave, there is nowhere to hide because now creation in even death and Hades surrender you up to the Creator. Creation is behaving well by surrendering you up and everybody appears to stand before God. That's what the Scripture text says. Finally, then, there is no power but that of God himself. Look at verse 14. Then death and Hades, they're personified here, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So just as the beast and the false prophet and the devil had been thrown into the lake of fire. So now death and Hades are thrown into the same lake. Done. Done. Vanquished forever. That which has caused the most fear. Even Hebrews says they lived lifelong in fear of death. Finally, death dies. And because people celebrate. Death is ultimately as powerless as all the other forces of evil. And the chapter ends with this affirmation. Look at verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they just pause there. I mean, I don't know if they have to turn the pages. If it's an actual book and they're looking, you know, Haefler. Hmm. hmm. I mean, that's how I kind of see it. You know, the the, hmm, Haefler. You know, that's my dad's name, Stephen. You know, I don't. I don't think it's going to be that way. But it at least makes it more personable for us. There's this book of life with names, and here's the warning. This is how this chapter ends. Right before the new heaven and the new earth. This is how it ends. Because if your name's not in the book, you don't get into the new heaven and the new earth. You go somewhere else. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. John sees a very clear and sharp division between those who are saved and those who are not. Is that clear? In conclusion, I'm not going to say anything else except read a passage and pray. John, the same author of Revelation, as he is recording his account of the gospel in John chapter 5, he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you. This is Jesus speaking. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. But John earlier said, records Jesus' words, that if you are in the Son, you have passed from death to life and you will not face the judgment. Are you in Christ this morning? Are you safe in Christ? That's the gospel. The good news is that is a fearful image. This is a fearful view forward. But Jesus, this sounds so trite, right? The bumper stickers and the billboards... Jesus saves. Would you trust him this morning? Let's pray.